A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is another episode of Jewish... This is Yehuda Geberer with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And... First of all, I got a bunch of uh, letters from last episode about the Sachachov dynasty, um, reassuring me that indeed uh, the Chalkasiyev was a student of the first Sachachov Rebbe, the Avnei Nezer, and uh, which I flip flopped about on the episode whether he was um, a Talmud of the Shemi Shmuel or of the Avnei Nezer and. Several of you were quick to to um, correct on that, that he was indeed of the Avdinezer. So thank you, and thank you for being alert. And the truth of the matter is, is that I knew that the whole time. I was testing you to see if you're really paying attention. So, it, you know, it worked. Um, so great. Now we're going to go back to, um, to uh, our regular uh, series, our ongoing series of the Valaj and Yeshiva. And where we're holding is, is by the passing of Rebitzel of Alajin, the son of the founder of Chaim Valajiner, and he dies in 1849. And now the question is, who's going to succeed him? And they, with the model of the new, new style yeshiva, the yeshivas are no longer owned or controlled by the community. And in which case, in the old community, community, excuse me, Kehila yeshivas of the pre-Valajin era, so the community board, essentially, whoever they hire to be the Rosh Hashiva is the, is the Rosh Hashiva. It's owned by the Jewish community. And they can either make the rabbi of the town there, um, the, the, the one in charge of the yeshiva, the Rosh Hashiva, or they can ha- bring in someone else, an outsider. It definitely doesn't have to go in a dynastic succession. But once the yeshiva is a non-communal institution, and it's founded by someone, and that someone raises money for it across the length and breadth of the Russian Empire, then it essentially not doesn't belong to him in the financial sense of the word, word because he fundraised for it and belongs to the Jewish people, but in an institutional sense, it belongs to him and becomes some sort of family business, 
which is interesting to note because at just about the same time, dynastic succession was taking on more and more in the Hasidic world. So, which is for other reasons, which I'm not going to get into now because it has to do with the history of Hasidus, but those were also important trends um, in the Hasidic world, why uh, that came to be so, and and that became one of the most dominant features of the Hasidic world. So it, it pretty much at parallel times, the yeshiva world and the Hasidic world adopted this uh, model of dynastic succession, which is a whole a whole system how it worked. But in Velazhin, it didn't it didn't go so smooth. And the way we originally start off the series is that Velazhin is the mother of all yeshivas, so it becomes the model for many features. And one of them is the frictions that are involved surrounding the idea of dynastic succession. So the first one who is involved here is the old, oldest. Ritzel had quite a few kids. He had a bunch of daughters, about five or six daughters, five daughters. And he had three sons, two of whom died very young in his own lifetime. Uh, one of them who outlived him, Rabbi Leo Zalman, who was a businessman, that was a successful businessman actually, but he was not a... Uh, Rosh Hashiva there, but his son-in-law would come to play a role, which we'll get to soon. But Reb, um, but the daughters of Rebitzel married some pretty impressive individuals, and one of them, the oldest one, was married to Rebbe Yitzchak Yitzchak Fried. Yitzchak Fried was her cousin, right? The original um, assistant Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin was Reb Chaim Valazhin's son-in-law, Reb Hillel Fried. So this is Reb Yitzchak Eliezer Fried is his son. So he's a grandson of Reb Chaim Velazhener and a son-in-law of Reb Itzla. He's definitely a natural candidate, and he's also a charismatic individual and a big Talmud Chacham, and the guys like him. And it was it, it was a pretty smooth transition. The main problem, not 100%, but pretty smooth transition. The main issue was that he died young. He dies only a couple of years later, four years later. So there's four years of his tenure as Rosh Hashiva, during which, you know, he didn't quite get the time to solidify his control over the place. And when he dies in 1853, now the real question of succession arises. What's what's going to be at this point? And by this time, Balazhin was a major and central yeshiva in the Jewish world, in the Lithuanian Jewish world. It had made its impact already, You're talking about a yeshiva that's already over 50 years old, and it made a tremendous impact in Jewish life, producing rabbis and great people, and became a center of, of, uh, of uh, focus, actually, of Jewish life in the Russian Empire. So therefore, therefore the, the question of succession went beyond the borders of the yeshiva, especially since it involved also the fundraising issues, which was a network at this time. There were... Gabayim, which we would translate today as some sort of board of the yeshiva in both Minsk and Vilna, and they had what to say about what went on here. There was also famous alumni. During Reb Itzel of Elijah's time, you had new uh, new stars of the of the yeshiva who went on to become great leaders of the Jewish people. People like Reb Leo Chaim Meizel, the longtime rabbi of Lodz, who was, became, attained his fame as during his almost 40-year tenure as the uh, chief rabbi of Lodz, greatest leaders in the Jewish people, a very special man. So he uh, he was a Rav in Lamja before that, and he um, he in fact came to the Velazhin, came to Velazhin at the grand 
old age of eight years old, which, I mean, I find it hard to believe, but that's what Stemfer says, and I trust him for it. And uh, and it's just, like, quite unbelievable that someone could come at eight years old. It's just, like, beyond uh, comprehension how... But he did, and at 13 he got smicha already. So I guess it's like a nice bar mitzvah present to get a smicha. And he goes on to become one of the superstars that Velazhin ever produced and the long, long rabbinic career and uh, leadership role in the Jewish people. And he also had what to say about Velazhin later on, as we'll see. Another uh, student of Velazhin during the time of Rebitzel of Velazhin also became a famous person, Rabbi Shmuel Meilover. Shmuel Meilover was, was one of the visionaries who of the Chibas Tzioin, um, um, before, you know, before the Chibas scene really took off, it was a Mevasrate Sion, a someone who envisioned the return to, uh, to Zion, to, um, to, to Eretz Yisrael, that settlements should be built, and then he lived long enough to actually see the beginning of that, to see the Chibas movement take off and be a part of it in the beginning, the early years. So he's also a Talmud of Velazhin at this time, another famous Talmud of Velazhin. Um, during the time of Rabbi Itzel of Elazhener, was the Arach HaSholchan, Rabbi Chil Michal Halevi Epstein. It was, you know, became one of the greatest uh, Paiskim um, in rabbis, the Rav, the longtime Rav in um, Novartic, but he was a rabbi in several other towns before that. And he eventually came to be related to the Velazhin family when his, um, when his sister, um, I'm sorry, when he, first he married the Nitziv's sister, they married a Berlin, so he was married, related to the Nitziv, but then his daughter um, married the Nitziv in the Nitziv's second marriage. So he actually became the Nitziv's brother-in-law. Um, so he had great, it was already producing great people. The point is, is that now uh, the question of succession is not an internal question, it's not limited to just the internal politics of the Velazhin Yeshiva, but rather... It becomes a question for the Jewish people, and um, and there's there's a it's a point of contention, and the main contender in the beginning, um, right after Yitzchak Eliezer Fried, Yitzhak Fried uh, passes on, is Rabbi Shua Heschel Levin. Rabbi Shua Heschel Levin was the son-in-law of Rabbi Leo Zalman of Elazhin, Rabbi Itzel's son, who was a businessman who was wealthy. So Rabbi Shua Heschel Levin um, was supported by his father-in-law not only financially but also in his in his uh, desire to become the Rashiva. Rishu Ashulavan was a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and he was a very charismatic individual, a very unique individual, um, also somewhat of a visionary, um, a thinker. A, a, he had you know, grand plans for the Yeshiva, for the Jewish people. He was a big doer, an activist. He... He was a meyuchis also. He had a lot of rabbinic yichus, all the way back to the Marsha, others. And he, and he was a, a strong contender for the position. He had a, an idea of what he wanted for the yeshiva. He wanted to change the style of learning. He wanted to incorporate certain modern elements. He felt that the way to fight the Haskalah would be to be, fight, fight it on its own terms. In other words, to incorporate certain elements of the modern world to bring certain changes into the style of the yeshiva, to bring more organization, more order, change the learning a little bit, and other ideas. He had a lot, a lot of ideas for how to change the whole system in the yeshiva, which the conservative elements in the yeshiva did not want to change. 
And um, he went on actually afterwards to Mishuash 11, a very, very active individual. First of all, he wrote the first biography on the Vilna Gain, Aliyah Silio, which became the prototype of many, many. The Vilna Gain is one of the most written about uh, people in recent history. And the, but the first one to ever write about him was the Mishuash 11, Aliyah Silio, a biography of the Vilna Gain. He also was a writer. He wrote in the first, the very first uh, um, orthodox, I guess we could call them retroactively, um, orthodox Torah journals. He was he wrote, he was a prominent writer, and one of his close friends in a lot of these endeavors was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and him were active together in a lot of the issues of the day of the Jewish people on combating the modernist elements of the Haskalah of the modern times, and again, similar to Yisrael Salanter, in a way of incorporating, incorporating excuse me, certain methods of the modern world and trying to uh, acclimate. In fact, the assumption is, is that Yisrael that Salanter was involved in pushing for Rabbi Shuashalevin's candidacy in the Velashin Yeshiva because he wanted that someone who was a forward-looking individual like him and, 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 and rec- cognizant of of what was going on in the world and what needed to be done and what changes needed to be done. He wanted someone like, he wanted one of his guys to be um, in Valaj Yeshiva in the position of the center of the Jewish people. This is the main Yeshiva. This is the one that's producing. So actually, Rishol Salanter, of all people, who never himself never learned in Valaj, but he was probably involved in the uh, candidacy of Rishu Hash 11. Rishu Hash 11, ultimately, um, he was a Rabbi in Paris in his later years, the emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe brought them all over the world. So there was a nice Jewish community of uh, Eastern European Russian Jews in Paris. And Rabbi Salander himself lived in Paris for two years towards the end of his life. And he was involved in getting Rabbi Shalom the candidacy, the, rab- the, the rabbinate of the Russian Jewish community in Paris later on. And the two of them stayed close for the remainder of their lives. In fact, Rabbi Shuash Levin was died in Paris and is buried there. Um, but in his attempt to get the yeshiva, he he would give shiurim that was rival shiurim to the netziv of Alajin, who was the one who was the one, the one who was the second son-in-law of Rabbi of Alajin. He married the younger daughter of Rabbi Raina, and he and he was the main candidate. And eventually, he was the one who won and beat out all the other candidates in the long wars of succession in the Velazhin. It was always between the Nitziv and someone else. And the Nitziv won every single time, until um, much, much later, but for at least the 1850s and 60s, anyone who stood up to the Nitziv, the Nitziv was able to, to hold his own and uh, remain the dominant Rosh Hashiva. And it became, he became the one that the name Velazhin is synonymous with the name of the Nitziv, the Nitziv of Alajan. He was the Rosh Hashiva there for well over 40 years. Basically like half of the time of the existence of Alajan was the time of the Nitziv's um, time there, uh, control over the Yeshiva. So the the it's between Rabbi Shuhaj 11 and the Nitziv. Rabbi Shuhaj 11 is, is offering rival shiurim out of his own house, giving shiurim there, giving Chumash shiurim, giving Gemara shiurim, and um, and the unique and exciting shurim, and people enjoyed them, and he was charismatic, and the Bachram were attracted to him, and he was bringing a new uh, 
a new wind, a new, a new fresh look to the yeshiva, and he was trying to become the main yeshiva. So eventually it becomes a din taira. Din taira not in the formal bezdin sense of the words. It wasn't an official rabbinical court, which is very interesting. What happens is, is that outsiders are brought in to resolve this din taira. Uh, Reb Zalman, the, the uh, Magid of Vilna, along with Reb David Tevel, the Nachlas David, who was Rav Minsk, who was the, one of the senior living Talmidim of Reb Chaim Velazhin. So it's two people, it's not a Bezdin, and both of them have some sort of connection to Velazhin. And the idea is that outsiders now are going to decide the future of the yeshiva. Again, this is a new thing. Um, and, and the, in other words, the yeshiva, there's no reason for the yeshiva to actually, that they would be required to accept this, this decision made by outsiders, but they willingly accepted the decision of the outsiders because that's what they chose to do. They felt that again, this is a Jewish people issue. And, and, and if you look through history afterwards, subsequent history shows that this is also a model that again, Velazhin can be called the mother of, yeshiva, of the modern yeshiva, because very often in the next couple of hundred years of history, you'll have the same system where there's an internal yeshiva dispute about succession, and what happens is is that they bring in outsiders to decide and, and, and I don't know if enforce, but uh, implement the decision about who should be the, 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 the one who succeeds the yeshiva, as the Rosh Yeshiva. So the Nitziv wins, and Yeshua HaShulavan got to leave, which he does, but he comes back to visit quite often. He doesn't leave entirely, he doesn't relinquish his, uh, his rights there entirely, and um, he, he has some sort of influence, very minimal, uh, even afterwards um, in the yeshiva. So, so um, the Nitziv, he's, he's, he gets that one. He's, 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 he's good to go. Now, the, 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 the formality of the Velazhin yeshiva was that there was always an assistant Rosh Yeshiva. That was since Reb Chaim Velazhin's times. And these outside uh, rabbis who came to decide about the future of the yeshiva they they said, no, we have to have a assistant Rosh Hashiva at this time also. In other words, it becomes like it, went, it goes without saying that Velazhin has two Rosh Hashiva. And this was never written into the bylaws of Velazhin. And there was never any law or halacha or anything that Velazhin has to have two Rosh Hashiva. But it was already understood when the Yeshiva is 50 years old that this is always how it, it has been. And therefore, it has to continue to be that way, and that there has to be a second Rosh Hashiva. It was self-evident and understood. And the one who becomes the second Rosh Hashiva was Rabbi Yosef Daiva Levi Soloveitchik, later to be known as the Beis Halevi. This is before he had published his Svarim, so he was not known as the Beis Halevi yet. But who is the Beis Halevi? The Beis Halevi is also part of the Beis Harav. The Beis Halevi was a great-grandson of Reb Chaim Velazhner. He, in fact, was more close to the Beis Harav than the Nitziv was. The Nitziv had married in. He married Reb Itzla. The Nitziv had come from Mir, not the yeshiva. He came from the town of Mir. He, his father, Reb Yaakov Berlin, lived in Mir, and the Nitziv grew up there and came to learn in Velazhner at a young age. And he married the Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Itzla daughter, at the age of 14. So he came in. Uh, the Beis Halevi grew up there. Not only was he a great grandson directly of Reb Chaim Velazhner, but he grew up in the atmosphere of Velazhner. And his father, um, before he went to Kovna, Reb Yitzchak Zev Halevi Soloveitchik, 
His father was involved in the Velazhin Yeshiva itself. He was there, he had some sort of position in the Yeshiva, and uh, therefore the, the Beis Levi was definitely a part of it. Now, he had not been a Rebbe in the Yeshiva at that point. He was brought in, he actually was in Minsk, in a very famous and unique Yeshiva known as Blumka's Kloys, and uh, was founded, was funded, uh, sort of founded, and definitely funded by a, a special woman named Blumka, and um, which is an interesting story about that yeshiva in Minsk, and in general the yeshivas in Minsk, and and the that yeshiva produced a lot of big people, and a lot of people, Gershon Tanchem uh, of Minsk was the yeshiva there before the Beis Halevi, but the Beis Halevi was a was was teaching in the was a rebbe in the yeshiva in in Blumka's Kloys in Minsk when he's brought in to become the assistant Rosh Yeshiva. And in that 1853 psak of the Bezdin, there's, there's, they write out what role the Beis Halevi has, what role the Nitziv has, and what non-role Rabbi Shua Heshelevin has. So that, 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 now, the, now it's supposed to be all peaceful. But it's not all peaceful because the Beis Halevi and the Nitziv are two very different people with very different styles, similar in age, and therefore no one really is dominant over the other. They give very different styles of shiurim in the yeshiva, and some of the bachurim like this style, some of them like that. There's disputes about acceptance and funding. You know, the yeshiva has an entire network of fundraisers now. And then there's the allotment of funds. Now the cash comes in by the fundraisers. They bring it in, it goes into a safe. So who has a key to the safe, and how do we dispense with the funds, and how high is the salary of each of the staff members? and so on and so forth. So it becomes, again, a point of contention, and it becomes an unsustainable situation very quickly. The two um, both are, are very strong and incredible personalities, and and um, and the question is, who's going to be the dominant Rashiva? Again, because the idea of two Rashi Yeshiva was never written out and spelled out anywhere, so it was assumed that one is the more dominant Rashi Yeshiva and one's only the assistant, but it was never really clear how that's classified, and how that's made very official. So just three years later, in 1856, there's a new Din Taira. Well, I guess they liked the two Dayanim from the first Din Taira, so they bring them back. Reb Zalman, uh, the Magid of Vilna, and Reb David Tevel, the Nachlas David of Minsk. And this time, they decide to bring another two. So again, it's an even number, so it's not a formal Bezdin. This is just, I guess, asking advice from the outside, and and having them help them make the decision, not in an official Bezdin way, but in a systematic way that they willingly accept the decision of these great people. The other two people are Rabbi Yassel Slutsker, Rabbi Yassel Famer, who was the Slutsker of, and he was also one of the senior uh, living Talmidim of Rabbi Chaim Velazhener. And then a very curious candidate, an up-and-coming leader in the Jewish people, who was still young at this time, Rabbi Yitzchakalchanan Specter, who was not yet the rabbi in Kovna. He was still the Rav in Navardic, and he was younger, and he had never learned in Velazhin. So again, this is a testifying testimony about how great Rabbi Yitzchakalchanan Specter was, is that even at this time, he already was chosen to be one of the four people to come and make this decision in the yeshiva. As Oh, it became a big event in the yeshiva. These four great people are there, and they obviously didn't just come for a day. They were there for a few days to work things out and decide and hear all the sides of the issues. So some of them gave shiurim in the yeshiva. I believe at this time, if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Sikachanan gave a shir in the Velazhin yeshiva. 
And uh, Reb Zalman, the Vilna Magid, he got up and said a, a, a speech about what it means to make a decision between two great people like the Natsiv and the Beis Alevi. He said, when we go through Sefer Bereshis, so it's exciting. The story is quite exciting because it's, uh, you know, he didn't make the analogy to the movies, but it's the idea that there's, like, like in the movies, there's a bad guy and a good guy, and you're rooting for the good guy, hopefully, and you're going against the bad guy. And he says, during Sefer Bereshis, you have always the good guy and the bad guy. You have Cain and Hevel, and you're rooting for the underdog and the good guy. And then you have later, you have Nayach, and you have the people living at the time of Nayach, and you have uh, later Avram Avinu against Nimrod, and then Yitzchak and Yishmael, and Yaakov and Esav, and there's always the good guy, the clear good guy, and the clear bad guy, and you know who to root for, and it's an exciting story to follow. That's, that's what he said. Um, and, and, and he said, then you come to the, the dispute between Yosef and his brothers, the, Sh- the Shvatim. And he said, here we get stuck. He said, because here we want to root for our bad guy, good guy system. And it doesn't work because they're both good guys. There's Yosef on one side and the Shvatim on the other. And there's no really clear good guy and bad guy here. So the whole thing falls apart. And it's very, it, the story gets kind of stuck because we don't know who to, who to go for. And, uh, and, and we're at a little loss in that story. So he said it's the same thing here. He said, you come to most Dine Taira and you have the good guy who someone cheated him and he's a tzaddik, and then there's the bad guy, the one who cheated him and stole his money, and you want to you wanna do justice and help the good guy. So most Dinei Torah are very exciting. But over here in Valazhin, it's not exciting, this Dinei Torah, because it's two great people, it's the Beis Alevi and the Netziv, and uh, you have to make a decision what's best for them and for the future of the Valazhin Yeshiva, and ultimately for the future of the Jewish people uh, as well. So what they decide is that the... Nitziv is the dominant Rashiva. They, it's an amazing thing that the document that they wrote out, supposedly wrote out as the decision of what it should be is very detailed and it's brought in two places. It's brought by Yaakov Lifshitz, the famous secretary of the Kovnerov, who recorded it. And then it's also later brought by, um, in the Makar Baruch, by, uh, by Baruch Epstein, the Torah Tamima. And, and, uh, you know, we stroll Bartal. Has, has questioned the accuracy of Yaakov Lifshitz's writings, and Yeshua Manshain has done an even, even better job of questioning the accuracy of any of the Makarbaros writings. So, you know, essentially, we're, it's two not very reliable sources, but Yaakov Lifshitz is generally much more reliable, and especially if the two sources bring very similar versions of the documents, so they kind of corroborate each other, and, uh, and, and it seems that there's, some level of accuracy about this, that there was, the, there was an actual document that, that survived, that people knew about, that was written out by these uh, Dayanim, I guess we can call them, in the Velazhin uh, issue. And they spell out their roles, that the, 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 the Nitziv is the main Rosh Yeshiva, and he has the main call on acceptance, although the Beis Alevi could also accept a new student to the yeshiva, if there's a letter that's addressed to him, and the Nitziv gets a higher salary, and they write how much his salary should be, he gets 13 rubles a week, which I guess you have to adjust for inflation to figure out how much he got, and the Beis Levi only gets 8 rubles a week, and um, 
and the, 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 that the Nitziv is also um, in, in charge of the fundraisers, but then the distribution of the funds uh, that the fundraisers bring in, they both have to have a say in it. They can't spend money without the other's knowledge. There has to be an agreement on the budget, on what the expenditures of the yeshiva are on. A very, very detailed account. The Beis Levi definitely got a stronger position that he had previously in the yeshiva. Now it was official, now it was enshrined in, 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 in this document. And therefore, they both seemingly came out as victors, but uh, in different roles. So that's the that's how that 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 uh, that question became resolved, but the Basilevi ultimately was not happy with it. He he still felt that he was being the assistant of Rosh Hashiva is not exactly a role that's for him, and he stays along in the yeshiva for another bunch of years, about eight more years in this other role. It was a lot of tension, and you can imagine that a decision like that also would add an element of tension because now. You know, they can't open the safe. They both have to have keys to the safe, essentially, to, to be able to give it, to, to distribute the money. They both are vying for control over the fundraisers. And there's an acceptance issue. He's accepting guys that he might not want and vice versa. The other guys accepting Bahram in the yeshiva who the other one might not want. And, um, it becomes a point of contention up to, uh, at some point, the Beis Alevi, uh, just, he doesn't. He doesn't. He's he's not enjoying it, and he leaves. I don't know exactly why at that point he left, but he left in 1864, and he and he became a the rabbi in Slutsk. He became the rabbi in Slutsk, and he 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 also had to leave there after a few years. He got into a dispute with with uh, some of the leaders of the community because he um, he was someone who was never scared to state his opinion. And he wasn't scared of the rich people in town, and he was a protector of the simple Jews in the town. And he, you know, he said his he said his opinion when it was necessary. And therefore, um, at some point, he had to leave Slutsk also because the rich people in the town were the one who paid the rabbi's salary. And in most towns, the rabbi just uh, bowed to the will of the of the wealthy in the community. The Beis Halevi was not someone who who uh, who did that, so he had to leave Slutsk. He moved to Warsaw. And he he lived there. He wanted to retire and just write his farm and learn there. He was close with a, a very special Warsaw Yid named Itche Grzynski, who was the father of Rom Grzynski, the, later the Mashgiach of Slabotka. Itche Grzynski was a, a very famous individual living in Warsaw. He was a Litvish Yid living in Warsaw. You know, the, the Beis Alevi, he he married a woman from Warsaw in his third marriage. He's married three times. The first time he got divorced. Uh, the second time he most of his kids came from his second marriage. Interestingly, he married a Hasidish woman both times. The first one was a a Chabad Chassid from a Chabad Chassid family, and the second marriage was from a Lechovich Chassid. Lechovich is where Slonim comes from. A, sort of a branch from Kobrin or Karlin, whatever whole uh, dynasty needs to be worked out one day also, and uh, and he and when she died, he went ahead and married a third woman from Warsaw. Which if she was from Warsaw, then she was probably Hasidish also. I'm not sure though. So it's interesting that the Beis Levi is always marrying Hasidish women. So that's also an interesting point. Uh, the Briskers come from nice uh, Hasidish yichas as well. So he, he, he marries a woman from there in his, in his third marriage. He settles down there. Uh, and eventually they encourage him to become the rabbi in Brisk. 
where he moves to and ultimately uh, famously is known as the as the um, the founder of the Soloveitchik Brisk dynasty. He took over from Yeshua Leib Diskin, who had moved at that time to Eretz Yisrael, and Rabbi Salevi remained for the remainder of his career and 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 his life in in Brisk. In fact, he's the only one of the dynasty that's buried in Brisk. Yeshua Leib Diskin, who was there before him, obviously was in Eretz Yisrael. His son, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, Rabbi son, uh, was um, is uh, buried in Warsaw. We go to him when we go to Warsaw with the groups. And he's buried next to the Nitziv. And, and of course, his son, the Brisker Rav, is buried in Yerushalayim. And his other son, Ramesh Soloveitchik, is buried in Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens, which we also go to. So we go to all the Soloveitchiks. But the only one who's actually buried in Brisk is the Beis Salevi, which when we go, we go with groups to Brisk, uh, incredibly enough. And when we go, it's unfortunate because the cemetery in Brisk has been destroyed, and it's like a parking lot. And we go uh, over there, and and uh, and there's someone, some survivor of Brisk, who who uh, when the group started coming before my time, I guess like 20 years ago, he said he remembers where exactly the base Levi's cover was. So now, based on tradition, based on Messiah, which was very apropos for Brisk. And uh, someone on one of my early trips pointed that out to me, that it's very apropos for Brisk that we only know the Beis Halevi's location of his cover according to a tradition, according to a Messiah. So that's uh, very appropriate as well. So we go and daven there by the Beis Halevi in the parking lot. And at this time, now the Nitziv, his, his position in the yeshiva is more solid, it's more secure, but it's not over. There's more contenders for the position because now that the Beis Halevi leaves, they still need an assistant Rosh Hashiva. And here's the next candidate, Reb Chaim Hillel Fried. Who's Reb Chaim Hillel Fried? Chaim Hillel Fried is the son of Reb Eliezer Yitzchak Fried. Okay, so he is a great-grandson of Reb Chaim Eliezer twice over, both through the original Fried, who we mentioned earlier, and also through his father, who's a son-in-law of Reb Itzla. So here he's a major guy, he's going to be the assistant Rosh Hashiva to the Nitziv. Again, he and the Nitziv didn't exactly get along, um, even though he was significantly younger than the Nitziv. And he, um, but but what happened was, is that he, the issue was sort of resolved at that point because because um, he got sick a couple of years later. Chaim Hilfried got sick and he wasn't able to carry out his his responsibilities as an assistant Rosh Shiva to give the shiurim, and um, the Nitziv uh, didn't exactly look to hire someone else from the family. But at this point, there's uninvited outside intervention, which is interesting. Again, it becomes a central role. Mm-hmm. Leo Chaim Meizel, we mentioned earlier, the Rav of Lodz wrote a letter, a strongly worded letter, that it's, uh, that it's important that Ruchayim Hilfried is still supported by the yeshiva, and as soon as he gets better, he should go back to his position, which he did not, the Nassif did not reappoint him to his position. And Ariel Chaim Ezel was supporting this candidate to be the Rosh Yeshiva, and him as an alumnus, and also as a rabbi, he was the rabbi in Lamja still, he was not the rabbi in Lodz yet. Rabbi Zikulchan Inspector, who had been previously a dying in this, in this, uh, in this earlier dispute, he also writes a letter in support of the Frieds. They also mention Rabbi Zalman, who was the, was the layman son, the Balabas son of Rabbi Zalman, who was the father-in-law of, um, of Rabbi Shuash 11. So, so, I'm sorry. No, whoops. So there's, 
excuse me, forget about Rabbi Zalman, but there was another uh, another freed son-in-law. Yitzhak Eliezer, freed son-in-law, uh, was Rabbi Ram Dave Mahayman, Mahayman, I try to pronounce his last name, and now that his brother-in-law, Rabbi Chaim Hill Freed, is sick, so they say, Rabbi Chaim Hill says, why don't we appoint him? He should become the assistant in Russian Shiva. Rabbi Ram Dave Mahayman is supposed to be involved, and he is involved at some level, and he is somewhat involved, he's not so involved, uh, there's all these suggestions about how to keep it in the base Sarav. Now, it didn't get good for the Nitziv. And it's amazing that he was able to win this one also, because at around this time, his wife died. Now, first of all, it was a personal tragedy. He was going through a lot. He was going through a hard time. And his, his wife passes away. Um, she was sick. And she was a sickly woman for a while. And she was sick. And she died. And and now that she died, besides for the personal tragedy that he goes through, um, it's, it means something very significant. She was his connection to the Beis Sarav. His second wife, who he eventually marries, is the daughter of Rabbi Chil Michal Alevi Epstein, the Aruch HaShulchan, who learned in Velazhin, but he's not connected to the Beis Sarav. He's, um, he was also, the, like I said, the Nitziv's brother-in-law. He had married the Nitziv's sister. But the Nitziv is not really related to the family of Rabchai anymore. His only connection has been severed. And yet the Nitziv is still the one who is able to solidify his position, and he was able to win this one out also. So also testimony to the Nitziv's dominance and how he was able to control the yeshiva and how he, a great man, a beloved individual, and a great leader. And he eventually leads the yeshiva into its golden age, which is the subject of our next episode, but he still needs an assistant Rashiva, and the Freeds are not an option. The Freeds do come back into the picture later on, and Reb Chaim Elfried lives long enough to, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, you know, lives long enough that after the closure of a lesson, he's one of the ones who's involved in reopening it through the Braski Kyle, which hopefully we'll get to in a later episode. Reb Chaim Elfried stays on the scene, he actually stays and lives in Valajan. He's one of the only candidates who stays around, who sticks around, so he's not completely out of the picture. Um, but the Nitziv appoints as an assistant Rashiva his own son-in-law. So again, his own son-in-law, Rafal Shapiro, who was a great man, a huge Talmud Chacham, and he was also had lineage. His his uh, his, father, his grandfather, let's double-check that, one of his immediate ancestors was the first Rav of Kovna, and um, Rav Label Kovna, and he was a very great man, and um, and he is the son-in-law of the Nitziv. So he, the Nitziv appoints him. But again, he's not connected to the family of Reb Chaim And now it's the Nitziv and his son-in-law. And obviously the Nitziv can control his son-in-law. He um, is much younger than him, and he puts him in his, the exact position that he wants him to be. And that's how peace returns to Valajan Yeshiva. After all the years, this is in 1870, right? The Nitziv becomes Rashiva officially in 1853. So it's 17 years of this going back and forth, who's the main Rosh Yeshiva, who's the assistant, what's going to be the future of the Yeshiva, but finally in 1870, what seems to be a period of peace, and actually at that time, the Yeshiva does go into its golden age. Rafael Shapiro remains the assistant of the Yeshiva for 11 years, and then he relinquishes his own position to become a rabbi of another town, and he brings in, with the Nitziv's agreement, his own son-in-law, who is none other 
than Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik. The, the Soloveitchiks get back into Malajan in 1881. Uh, who's the, he's the son of the Beis Salevi, but he had married the granddaughter of uh, of the Netziv, and therefore he gets back in and he's the assistant Rosh Yeshiva. So ultimately, Reb Zalman, the Magid of Vilna, when he said that they're both good guys, and how do we decide in this dispute? It was almost prophetic what he said, because eventually the son of the Beis Salevi becomes the Rosh Yeshiva along with the Netziv. And again, we'll have to see how that relationship worked out, especially when we get to the years of the closure of the Yeshiva. But that's a little bit about the, the uh, succession issues of, of the Yeshiva, which, which um, was a long protracted issue, but eventually um, did the Yeshiva well. What we can look back and summarize this whole, this whole period is that how central of a place Velazhin had now become. The Gabayim of the Yeshiva in Vilna and Minsk are heavily involved during this whole time. They're inviting the different rabbis to be, be involved. They're writing letters to the Nitziv. They're involved in the funding, which becomes a major component of it. The fundraising of the Yeshiva is a central issue. It's not just about the style of learning, as we might like to think, and who gives a better shir, and, or like in the case of Rishu Hashelevin, who understands the chinuch, the educational methodology in modern times, and, and, and what Rabbi Yisrael Salanter is pushing him to do. It's not just about that. A lot of it has to do with the fundraising, who controls the shadarim, the fundraisers, and what the acceptance policy of the yeshiva is. And therefore, a place like Valajan is not just limited to the internal politics of the yeshiva or the internal issues in the family of Rabbi Chaim Valajaner, but it actually becomes a question for the Jewish people and that's how, really, how many central yeshivas, if you go through history, again, in modern times, Panovich, Lakewood, and other yeshivas, Hebron, and other yeshivas, the idea that outsiders get involved, and it becomes an issue of Klal Yisrael, of the Jewish people, of the future of the yeshiva world, even though we're talking about the succession of an individual yeshiva, that already has its antecedent in Valajan. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGE. BSS at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to the great places of Jewish history. And of course, you can um, um, speak to me about sponsorships of episodes. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.